So I'll talk about the structure of Joshua, talk about one critical issue, and then we'll jump in. So uh, Joshua is a book that is structured symmetrically. So that means that the beginning and the end look the same, the almost beginning and almost end look the same, and the middle is typically the most important stuff. So uh, chapters one through four are all about Joshua. They uh, basically show that Joshua is the new Moses. Uh, unlike Moses, Joshua is actually successful in his leadership because the people he's leading aren't rebellious idiots. Um, chapter five uh, is this really weird chapter we'll look at, but it just shows that God's people were faithful, almost uniquely faithful in this generation. Chapter six through 12 talk about the conquest of Canaan. These are lots of war stories, God's people going to war, conquering uh, the promised land. Um, chapters 13 to 21 are basically uh, a map without pictures. It's, it's, it's nine or eight chapters that describe the promised land. This is where uh, another place where Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, but I think we're going to find some interesting, really cool things here when we examine it. Uh, chapter 22, very parallel to chapter 5, uh, is another story about how faithful these particular people were. And then finally, the book closes with the words of Joshua. So um, typically at this point in time, I would pray. We jump in. I do want to address... Um, a major issue before we jump into the book, just because this is maybe one of the biggest objections to the Bible that is out there. And that is that uh, the book of Joshua describes God commanding and enabling and approving of his people going to war and destroying almost whole people groups. And a lot of people uh, who are critical of the scriptures will say things like, you know, how can we believe in a God who commands genocide or who is bloodthirsty. All right, so, so here's a question before we jump into Joshua. Did God command genocide? Uh, should Christians use this book as an excuse for war and violence? Are unbelievers right when they claim that the God of the Old Testament was bloodthirsty? All right, here are a couple things to think through that are very important. First, the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of this land, has nothing to do with what we call genocide today. Now, genocide... Uh, is the destruction of a group of people based on race, ethnicity, or religion. That's what, that's what, it's also called ethnic cleansing in some parts of the world. It's when evil people destroy a group of people merely based on their race, uh, ethnicity, or um, religious. Uh, in Joshua, whenever God talks about the conquest of Canaan, he always speaks in moral terms. The reason the Canaanites are destroyed is because of their particular and peculiar and very extreme wickedness. So uh, in Genesis 15, 16, when God promises Abraham that his descendants would inherit Canaan, he tells them it's going to take a long time for this reason. The sin of the Amorites, one of the groups here, is not yet complete. In other words, um, God was going to be patient with the Canaanites, see if they repented, but at some point, he knew in his foreknowledge that their sin would become such a horrific kind of thing that judgment had to fall. Deuteronomy 4, uh, 9-4 is even more clear. Uh, God says to the people of Israel, Do not think that it's because of your righteousness that I'm driving these nations out. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. If you remember, this was a... You guys probably don't remember this, but when we taught through Leviticus, we talked about... Um, what, it, what was required to dwell in God's presence, what you had to do. 
And uh, in the Old Testament, where God's presence dwelt in particular places, there were different requirements based on how close you were to God's presence. Uh, But the very outer circle of dwelling in God's kind of general presence in the world, the only requirement was don't be horrible. There were many nations in the world, many of them doing lots of things, many of them doing lots of wrong things, and God, in his grace, just allowed them to do their thing. But when sin got to a particular level, when it got horrific, God's judgment would fall. Um, And these these Canaanites who lived uh, in the promised land, uh, they were horrible. I actually, uh, their sin is so grotesque, I actually don't feel comfortable about talking about it in a public setting. You can actually go to Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 27 on your own, and you can learn about all of the sexual practices of the Canaanites. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just not going to go there. It's, it's that gross, all right? Uh, in Deuteronomy 12, we also learn that the Canaanites regularly practiced child sacrifice. They would take their babies, put them on an altar to, Mo- altar to Molech, and murder them. That was a regular part of Canaanite life. And so when, when we talk about the conquest of Canaan, we can't think about Western colonization. We can't compare it to the horrific trail of tears in our own country's history. It's not that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God's judgment falling on a particularly perverse people. If you're okay with war against Nazi Germany, you should be okay with the conquest of Canaan. If you're okay with, especially if you're okay with Jesus returning at the end of the age to judge the wicked, right? You should be okay with the conquest of Canaan. Here's a second thing to think through, all right? Uh, In the book of Joshua, any Canaanite who repented and who switched sides and who pled for mercy was granted mercy. Uh, In chapter 3, Rahab, sorry, chapter 2, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, uh, because she cooperated with the Israelite spies, they were all saved. Uh, In Joshua 9, an entire people group, the Gibeonites, even though they deceived and lied to the people of Israel, uh, they pled for mercy they were saved. But every single other Canaanite tribe made war against Israel. So uh, I know that was a long tangent, uh, maybe not the most exciting way to start a Sunday school lesson, uh, but I think it's just a critical question. And if you have uh, more questions about that, I would like you to write them down and then stop thinking about them. Because the book of Joshua has this really cool message, uh, this message that kind of lands us right at me walking with Jesus today. Um, But it has nothing to do with this question I just answered. So if you've got issues with that, write them down. We'll talk about it for class. That's great. But we're going to see in Joshua um, that God fulfills his promises and that with God's leader, God's people will certainly conquer and they will receive everything he's promised. So let's, let's pray that the Lord would help us receive that and uh, learn from that. So uh, Lord Jesus, thanks for this book. Thanks for um, just that we, we read in Luke 24, the entire Bible is about you. It all shows us who you are. It all shows us what life with you is like. And so we pray that you would uh, meet us this morning, um, even as we survey a whole book. Uh, We pray you'd meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. So I recently uh, heard of this award-winning video game. Uh, It has been uh, since I was a middle school pastor where I referenced a video game in Sunday school. So anyways, um, but this game game is very unique. Uh, It's called That Dragon Cancer. And I know only some of you are into video games. but uh, most people who really love video games um, 
really, uh, they love it because typically the player has control over the experience. If you die, it's because you lack skill. Um, and over time, you can build your skill and, and conquer and whatever um, while you sit on the comfort of your couch and enjoy, you know, whatever. So it's a, that kind of a, that's what video games appeal to a lot of people for. Um, but this game is very different. Uh, as the game progresses, um, as, you, uh, as you grow in your skill and competence, you actually start to lose control. It's a game about a little boy who has cancer. Um, in fact, the uh, people who developed this game were uh, believers whose son died at a young age from cancer. And so you've got all these fun levels that you can win and do stuff in, but no matter what you do, slowly the boy's health deteriorates. And the last level, uh, you're basically in this cathedral, this really creepy cathedral, um, and no matter what you do, the lights go out and the boy dies. You lose no matter what, no matter how well you play. The dragon cancer wins. Um, but after you lose that last level, there's like this black screen for like 10 seconds. And then you see this little thing set that says loading. And um, you're taken to a different level. All of a sudden, you're out of the cathedral, and you're in this kind of wonderful, graphically beautiful wood. And uh, you see the boy again this time. He's healed and whole and sitting in this giant feast of pancakes and uh, just enjoying it. He's talking to you about, oh, man, you made it. This is so great. I'm so happy now. And uh, the only thing you're allowed to do in the last level is blow in bubbles because that's his favorite thing. Um, he got to life and joy and health, not by winning, but by dying. Now, uh, anyone who here is a Christian, what does that make you think of? What comes into your mind when you think of a little boy who actually gets life through death? Hopefully that makes you think of the gospel, right? Hopefully it makes you think of the Easter story, right? Jesus dying for sinners, being raised to new life, offering them hope. Not by winning at life, right? But by surrendering control. And uh, the authors of this video game were Christians, and they did not include a gospel presentation in their video game. But uh, if you play it, and you experience the helplessness of death, and all of a sudden, in the last level after losing, you arrive in paradise, which makes no sense in a video game, you may, not, you may not get the whole gospel, but you get kind of a feel. You get a sense. And uh, modern video games aren't the only places that do this. In fact, um, the Old Testament is always doing this or often doing this. You read the Old Testament carefully, and you will encounter people and stories that will kind of just make you think of Jesus. They'll, they'll, they'll just be things that happen uh, that will give you this sense and uh, the, fancy, the fancy term for what's going on when the Bible or when other things do this is analogy. Um, an analogy is an indirect or incomplete comparison between something happening in the Old Testament and the reality of Jesus. And um, because we know that God inspired the Old Testament, we can read the Old Testament that way. We can look for these things. Uh, if that example is totally wacko to you. Maybe this one would be a little more helpful. Uh, biblical analogies are like diving boards. They help us get into the pool, right? The gospel is where we want to go. We want to see Jesus. We want to know him. And then we read stories in the Old Testament that help us get there. So uh, why did I start off with a video game about cancer and analogy? Uh, as a book, Joshua, um, more than any other book we've read so far, uh, gives us this incredible picture that is a wonderful analogy to our lives in Christ. And here's the picture. I've said this, but the picture is that with God's leader, 
God's people will conquer and receive what's promised. That's the book of Joshua. That's its message. With God's leader, God's people, they will conquer and they will receive what he promised. Um, And we're going to see, as we walk through this book, this will be kind of a different Sunday school lesson, but as we walk through this book, uh, I'm going to talk about that in Joshua, and then I'm going to apply it to our lives in Christ. So here we go. First thing we see is a picture of God's leader, uh, Joshua. We're going to see him as this invincible figure, not really an example to follow, but a leader to follow. So um, the beginning of the book describes the transition between Joshua or Moses and Joshua's leadership. Uh, we see in Joshua 1.3, you're welcome to try to follow along if, you, if you'd like. I'm going to kind of move, move through the book. But Joshua 1.3, God says to Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. No man shall be able to stand before you all of the days of your life. God promises Joshua that he is going to be invincible. Uh, but he'll only be invincible if he does what verse 7 says. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that, my Mo- that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Notice uh, Joshua had to be obedient if he was to be victorious. Uh, and the rest of the book kind of flushes out God fulfilling this promise to Joshua. Joshua is obedient. He does follow the Lord. And, and he is invincible. There's not a battle in this book that he loses. He's invincible. They don't even really lose a lot of soldiers in all these battles. Um, and for those of you who were raised in the church, uh, particularly guys out there who probably went to youth group and heard Joshua taught on, um, I want to try to make something clear. Uh, when we look at Joshua, at first, we might be tempted to think of him as an example to follow. Right? If you do what God commands, then you'll be blessed. But the picture that Joshua actually gives of this guy is of a unique, one-of-a-kind, invincible leader to whom God has promised victory. And if he wants victory, he must be obedient. Um, And I think it's much more helpful to see Joshua as a conquering leader. I think it's a lot lot easier uh, to apply this to our lives that way. I mean, I love you guys, okay? But Joshua's special. You're not Joshua, all right? God has not promised you invincibility if you obey him. We're not in a video game, right? Um, so what, I think what God is doing in this picture um, is he's giving us a shadow, a little, a little springboard to help us see who Jesus is. And this is a particularly helpful picture of Jesus. And what we see in the Old Testament, and as we move through the Old Testament, we'll see this more and more, uh, but different characters will highlight different aspects of who Jesus is. Different kings and leaders will highlight different parts of him. Um, Typically, most often, when we think about Jesus, what we celebrate and meditate on is what we did at Easter, right? That Jesus, the perfect Savior, he lived an obedient life, he died for my sins, he was raised to new life, I trust him, I get life. And that's that's the main thing. But notice what we see here. Uh, Jesus is not just the Savior. He is the victorious and invincible conqueror. No one stands against him. As he said in Matthew, the gates of hell will not prevail. Joshua helps us see that Jesus is the one whom God has promised success to, that people who follow him will have reward with him. I think sometimes we, uh, and we've talked a lot about uh, ministering to other people and evangelism and those kind of things in our class, and 
think it's important. It's something we all struggle with. We all need encouragement in. But uh, we don't ever want to talk about mission and evangelism in a way that suggests that poor Jesus really needs our help. That's not the case. He is the warrior king who wins. He's invincible. No one stands against him. Our choice really is, are we going to go with him? Or are we going to be left behind? That, that's the choice when we talk about evangelism and mission. Are we going to be able to see him work, be with him as he conquers, or not? Um, but I think, I think the idea that Jesus is invincible, that he wins, that he is the Joshua to whom no one can stand against, that's meant to give us confidence as we wade into the mess of life. Um, listen, it is really easy to just get discouraged in your personal mess and in sin in your life. Uh, I'll just be honest. I feel like I have been angry and impatient from the moment I had my first child. Um, and I know you guys aren't in that stage of life, but you all have your own besetting sin. You have something that will not go away that you feel helpless against. And it's really easy to be discouraged um, when you have issues that don't, you think maybe there's something wrong with me or wrong with my Lord. Listen, here's the thing. Jesus, whether it is this year, right, or when you die, Jesus is going to conquer your sin. He's invincible. It will not stand against him if you follow him. And I think, I think not just for you, though, for other people. But, you know, we're all called to minister to other people. We're all called to give our lives away. And we're all like, I'm going to do this. It's going to be great. And in the moment we actually get in relationship with other people to help them take a step towards Jesus, we're like, this is impossible. Like, they are so stubborn, right? Like, I can't, like, like I keep saying the right things and they keep ignoring everything I say. Like, that's, that's, that's what most people who are involved in people's lives experience. Anyways, and, and what God wants for you is to go into ministry towards other people, not focusing on your gifting and your abilities or their hearts, but focusing on Jesus who conquers and who's invincible. So first we see God's invincible warrior leader. All right. Uh, next, we see God's faithful people. Uh, perhaps the unique thing about the book of Joshua is that in this book, maybe the only book in the entire Old Testament, we see God's people before Jesus actually obeying him. I know that might sound strange if you've been in Sunday school for a while, but like, like they're actually obedient in this book. Um, Joshua 5 and Joshua 22, these, these, little, uh, these little accounts uh, in, that kind of just are kind of randomly in the book, they're, they're there, I think, to describe how faithful this generation was. In Joshua 5, verses 1 to 12, uh, we see that God's people respond to him with kind of some dangerous and painful obedience. Um, in, uh, in the original covenant God made with Abraham, uh, he required that uh, all the males in the people of Israel be circumcised. Um, and that typically would happen when a baby boy was born so that they wouldn't remember the trauma. No, I'm just kidding. But what happened uh, in all the mess of the wilderness generation, no one got circumcised. And so they're sitting on the edge of the promised land and all of the warriors need to be circumcised. And needless to say, it was not going to be a good day for any of them. There's no Tylenol. There's no whatever. Anyways, but, um, but also, as we read from other places in the scriptures, um, it also would leave the army incapacitated for several days. So think about it. You've got God's people on the edge of the promised land, surrounded by enemies, and God's like, time to be circumcised. And they're like, all right, let's do this. It was, it was an act of faith, a costly, painful act of faith, only because God commanded it. There's no, there's no logical reason. And they're like, all right, let's do this. 
uh, later on in the book, in Joshua 22, more of a complex passage. But this is after the promised land has been conquered. God's people are settling. And there are these three tribes that make what looks like an altar. And I'll just let you read the details of the story. I'm not going to try to explain it. But the other, uh, the other nine and a half tribes are like, they are disobeying God. They're trying to offer to uh, false gods. And so what do they do? They get ready for war again. They literally just moved into their house. And they're like, all right, time to get back to war. We're going we're to figure this out. And, uh, and they meet together in the middle. They're about to go to battle with their own people over this religious thing. And, and all of a sudden, there's this dialogue. And the, the three eastern tribes were like, hey, we, we just did this as a memorial so that, that you guys would remember that we really are a part of God's people. And there's this, it's almost like they're having a contest of who can be more holy. Like, everyone is so devoted zealously to the Lord that they're having this, like, almost war about it. And there's pictures. These people were faithful. Now, uh, what's helpful about Joshua is they're, they're not perfect. Uh, we actually see two major mistakes in this book. In Joshua 7, uh, a guy named Achan, not a good name for future children. He stole devoted things from Jericho and brought sin into the camp and hid it. And God's people actually lost a battle. Um, and, but after, they, they repent. They deal with it. And they move on. In Joshua 9... An entire people group of Canaanites trick Israel into making a covenant with them. Uh, and it even says explicitly in Joshua 9 that, that Joshua and the leaders did not seek the counsel of the Lord about this. They blew it. But they repented and they moved on. They were faithful. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. They fought the Lord's battles. They had him at the center of their lives. And just uh, consider for a moment how we might apply this generally to our lives in Christ. Um, who are the kind of people that God loves to bless and give his promises to? Faithful people. But when we say faithful, we've got to be really clear. Faithful does not mean perfect. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean always doing what is right. It primarily involves showing up to the Christian life and continuing in the Christian life. Um, God does not require you to experience overwhelming emotions every time you're here on Sunday. He does not require you to memorize Psalm 119 or whatever. Um, those might be good things. But what he requires you to do is to be steadfast in season and out of season, to continue with him. And I think most of all, like the people in Joshua did, to adjust your life when you're convicted, when you're confronted by the scriptures, when you're confronted by the word, you don't say, ah, that doesn't apply to me, right? But you say, this is, all right, I'm going to change. That's what faithfulness looks like. The, these are the kind of people who follow God's leader, who inherit his promises. Not perfect, right? Not always doing what's right, but, but walking with him. So again, if you want to receive spiritual blessing over the course of your lifetime, fall down five times, get up six. All right, so we've seen God's invincible leader. We've seen God's faithful people. And now we see what they do together. They conquer. This is a very easy thing to miss in Joshua. Uh, but Joshua is a sweaty, dirty, I have not bathed in 10 months. I sleep under the stars. My hands have calluses. I've got blood on my face. I have a wound that is slightly infected kind of book. The bulk of this book is years and years of on the move, sleeping on the ground, fighting battles, dusty, sweaty, I'm exhausted, but we got the next thing to do. That's this book. That's what God's people are doing. They are called to action. Their walk with Jesus is movement. It's, uh, 
it's hard. It's wearisome. Um, we also see in, in Joshua how God's people conquer. Uh, this, the famous story that even my little kids know, Joshua 6, about Jericho, the first battle. They are going to enter the promised land. There's this giant fortress, Jericho. And God says, Joshua, here's the plan, dude. March around the city for seven days. And you can almost see uh, the soldiers scratching their heads and hear the mocking of people in the walls. But, but on the seventh day, they march around, they blow the trumpets, the walls fall, and they conquer. I think the idea there is God was just setting the tone for what this, this war was going to look like. It was going to be one of obedience and faith. But uh, here is where interpreting the Bible through Jesus is very helpful, helpful when analogy kind of keeps you grounded. Um, when we're thinking about Jesus as we read the Old Testament, we can read a book full of war and not say that I should go out, right, and actually practice violence. Um, the Bible wants us to look at Joshua and ask the question, what, is this, what does this mean for my walk in the New Testament under Jesus and all he's done? And I think what we, uh, what we see here when we think about that, about God's people conquering, is kind of what we saw uh, if you were here when we spent eight months in the book of Revelation, that Christians must conquer, that the Christian life uh, is primarily a life of conquest. It may not be sweaty with callus on your hands, but it should feel like that. Um, what Christians conquer has changed, but that we have to conquer has not changed. Um, I, th- I would just encourage you to stop seeing your obedience to Jesus as doing the right thing and start seeing your obedience to Jesus as conquering everything in you that resists him. There is a war that has to be waged in your life. Right? The, the scriptures say over and over again, Galatians 5 says, the, the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other, that you have desires that rage against God's call in your life. There's not just a war within, though. There's a war uh, outside, too. And what's interesting and what I love is that our war is not against people, but for people, right? Christians go to war for the souls of people. We don't fight with swords, right? We fight with words, right? God's people conquer with the words of the gospel and the deeds of love. Um, we, we, we live as an army on mission for the good of our enemies. But, but we, can't, we can't miss this, right? In, in a day when it's so easy to just feel really world-beating and counterculture just by being here on Sunday morning, because it's such a rare thing, right? When it's so easy to spend most of your Christian life comfortable and doing what pleases you, we've got to say we have to conquer our lives in Christ, our lives with Jesus should stretch us and should strain us. If we're living on mission with Jesus, if we're dealing with our sin, there will not be peace and calm all the time. So God's people will conquer. This last part of Joshua shows us that the conquest is worth it. Uh, This next section of Joshua talks about the reward, about the promises fulfilled. This generation, as they faithfully walk with God's leader, uniquely, they got to see the promises fulfilled. Um, And in Joshua 13 to 21, 
we see the promised land divided up and inherited. So the conquests are basically over. There's this big summary of all the kings that were defeated in Joshua 12. And then Joshua 13 starts with Joshua divided the land. And literally, for about eight chapters, you have a description of the land of Israel. And uh, it's like a map with no pictures. It's uh, potentially, in your personal quiet time, very, very boring. Um, But we do see uh, a couple of really important things here. We see one incredible thing, and we see a couple of of little things that are helpful. Uh, First, just know that it might be boring to you, but for someone uh, in Joshua's day reading this description of land, it would have been like goosebumps-inducing end of Avengers 3 type stuff. Like, just just like, whoa! So just imagine this, imagine this, all right? Your great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy is a wandering Arminian named Abraham. He never had anywhere to live. Your great-great-granddaddy was a, a slave in Egypt, never had anything of his own. Your, and your dad was a stubborn, rebellious person who wandered the desert for 40 years with you. And you, as you follow God's leader and as you conquer, you get a tangible piece of land. You have something. You see, see how significant that would be? Now, again, we've, all, we've always had space to live. We've always had been settled. We've all, we, don't, we don't really get that. But for, for these people with their history, this would be glorious. This is what God promised. This is, this is seeing tangibly God's promise fulfilled. We also see a couple of really interesting things in this passage, if we read uh, carefully. Um, in Joshua 13 through 21, we see a lot of special people get special rewards. Uh, there are a few people like Caleb, who was one of the really faithful commanders. We've got these guys, Othniel and Makir, great baby names, just kidding, um, who, uh, who were like these macho men who conquer cities. And then we've got, uh, in chapter 17, the daughters of Zelophedad, who, uh, who are known for their faith. And all of these people receive special, something special, something greater than a normal person would receive in Israel. Likewise, at the same time, we see lots of God's people in this section not receiving everything they could have because they fail to conquer. And we'll see this play out in the book of Judges next week, which takes a major downhill turn. Um, but we, what we see is everybody gets something who follows God's leader. Some people, because of their faithfulness, get something special. And some people don't get as much as they could have gotten. And what's really interesting is, uh, you know, Buster preached on this last week if you were here, but, but uh, Jesus says this, that, you know, salvation itself, just being saved and going to heaven is a great reward. But... The way we're rewarded in heaven, how happy we will be forever, in some ways is dependent on how faithful we are now. I'm going to be real, real clear here, okay? Uh, you, you come to Jesus by faith. You trust him. You rest on him. You repent. You turn from your sin, right? You live. Uh, you, you consistently live that, right? Or through, through the course of your life, right? You have heaven. That's enough. It's going to be great, glorious, right? But God loves to lavishly reward his people. And so for people uh, who who really pursue him and who walk with him and who give their lives away, he loves to give lavish rewards. And um, I just think your obedience today will not determine your salvation if you know Jesus. But in some ways, it will determine how happy you are forever. Everybody's going to be happy, but there will be people who are happier forever because of their faithfulness. And again, uh, I think God just knows us here, right? Uh, I tell you to do the right thing because it's the right thing and nobody does it. I offer you $25,000 to register for Carowinds. <laughs> you guys are there, right? Like the human heart is motivated by rewards. God knows that about you. 
So uh, we have seen this very encouraging message in the book of Joshua with God's invincible leader to whom Joshua just was a shadow, the Lord Jesus. God's people will conquer and inherit the promise. We have this vision here, very shadowy one, just a diving board, right, of the church moving forward in victory. No one able to stand. God bringing the kingdom through his leader, the Lord Jesus. It's very encouraging. Some of you guys, if you're discouraged, you're struggling with what's around you or what's in you, you might just need to to camp there. You might just need to be encouraged by that, just to focus on that. Jesus is leading. He's in charge. The kingdom is coming. But um, the end of this book has a little bit, has some teeth to it. Uh, There's a twist at the very end of Joshua that is worth us thinking about. We'll see two things. Actually, there's a beginning and the end, but in Joshua 5, right after that weird passage about circumcision, Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's armies, probably a pre-incarnate Jesus, but commentators aren't sure, but it's this angelic figure, and uh, Joshua asks him a question. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? And his answer is no, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And the idea is that Joshua, you've got to understand something. The question is not, is God on my side? The question is, am I on God's side? God has his plans and his own agenda. He does not bow to my, to my needs and preferences. The question is, am I aligned with him? Am I aligning my life to his? Is my agenda becoming his agenda? And we see this again uh, in the conclusion of Joshua. In Joshua 24, 14 to 15. Now, Joshua says to them, he describes how they're going to struggle. But he says, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your, in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So God's people are in the land. They've conquered. Things are going well. And Joshua says to them again, there is a choice before you. Who are you going to serve? And uh, so here's how this, this twists our little theme. All right, here's what the theme of Joshua is. God's, under God's leader, God's people will conquer and inherit the promise. But what about you? Jesus is moving forward with his people. The church is on mission. They are invincible. God's going to win. The only question is whose side will I be on? Where will I land? Who will I serve? There's this wonderful little book, maybe a great book to go through this summer if you need something to read, called What is the Gospel? And uh, there's this chapter about how we respond to Jesus. And he talks first about uh, faith, um, which is very helpfully as relying upon Jesus to save you, not just believing he exists, but relying upon him to save you. But then he defines repentance. And the way he defines repentance is very helpful for us. He says, uh, it's not just belief that Jesus died for my sins. All right, it's not just uh, dealing with my sins. It is changing sides. The idea is that before Jesus, all of us, every heart is on my side, about my agenda, my dreams, my plans, my desires, and whatever sins those lead to. And I'm, I'm against God and his desires to change those things. And what repentance is, is changing sides. Now, I am on God's side, and I am against everything that gets in the way of his plans, including my desires and dreams and agendas. 
And um, again, the question that Joshua asks us is what side are we on? What, whose who's agenda are we after? God's people with God's leader will conquer. Will you, will I? Let's pray. Lord, uh, thanks for this book. Thanks for uh, just you over thousands of years, Lord, authored the scriptures. And even in this one written very many generations before your birth, we see you, Jesus. We see how you're leading us. And we just pray you'd help us to be faithful. You'd encourage us. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.